Hey, over the last five weeks, we've been in a series called Till the End of Time, and we've been talking about end times issues, and we've been uh, talking about heaven, and last week we talked about hell. And uh, today, I think you can't talk about end times unless you talk about the book of Revelation. And so what I'm going to do over the next uh, several minutes is try to give you an overview of the book of Revelation. And I want to tell you right now that usually when I've done this, it's been in a classroom setting, and so there's interaction. So today, there might be a couple of opportunities for interaction I also want you to know that usually there's a whiteboard behind me, and so today we're going to have to do sort of an imaginary whiteboard as I describe a couple things for you. And the other thing is I didn't give you any slides today because if I had Gary back here in the back would have had a lot of trouble following all of those slides, all right? So on your notebook today or on your sheet, I provided, and if you don't have one, you can go out and get one in the lobby, a front and back of notes today. We're going to walk through these as we talk about the book of Revelation. Now, when you think about the book of Revelation, there are a lot of different ways to interpret it. A lot of people have different views. There's a popular way to, to look at Revelation today. I, I have a, my own view, and I'm going to teach that view today. But, uh, but what are some of the words that come to mind when you think about the book of Revelation? Why do you think people don't study that book? It's a little bit scary. Yeah, they're not sure about end times, Right. A little bit confusing language from time to time when they read that. When they read the beast out of the sea and it's got ten heads and so on and so forth, they think, oh no, I, I don't even want to go any further. I don't understand this. And so what I want to do is just start with Revelation chapter 1. Anytime you read a book of the Bible, you have to understand who it was written from, who it was written to, what the audience was. That will help us put it into context. So if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and just open right up to Revelation chapter 1. And if you're like me, you're going to be looking in your extra large print Bible today, all right? It's, it is, you could probably read it from there, actually. It's, it's a great. Here, here it is, Revelation 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, look who it was written from, okay, here we go, from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So, so far, what do we have? Who was it sent from? From God to Christ to who? To the angels and he says he's going to send us he's going to show his servants he's going to send the message through his angels to who to john right to his servant john now go down to verse 11 all right verse 11 and in verse 11 you're going to see who is actually written to he said write on a scroll which you will see and send it to the seven churches and then he names the churches so here's the first thing i want you to know in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it was a letter written not first to you or to me, okay? It was written to seven real churches who were going through real challenges and real struggles and had real persecution, okay? That's really important to know because sometimes we like to interpret Revelation only from our perspective, right? 2,000 years later. And what we always have to ask is, what did this message mean to the people that it was originally intended to be written to in Revelation chapter 1? Now, the second thing I want you to know is that very second word there is the revelation is actually a Greek word. The Greek word is apocalypsis, which is where we get what word? Right, like apocalypse now. Now, apocalypsis, apocalyptic was actually an apocalyptic literature. It was a style of literature that was really used from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. So it was a style of writing that the people of that day would have really been pretty well acquainted with. 
And so here we are trying to interpret a book 2,000 years later, and none of us in this room are very familiar with apocalyptic literature. But apocalyptic literature typically used symbols. It had a high level of drama. Uh, It typically had a message of hope, but it was given through a message of challenge. One of the places we see this in the scripture is in the Old Testament in the character of Joseph. And so Joseph, as a boy, had some dreams, and he had a couple dreams, and he dreamt about the sun and the moon and the stars, some symbols. Those symbols had a meaning. What was their meaning? Their meaning was that his brothers were one day going to bow down to him. Funny, I had that dream, too, as a kid. I don't, I don't know why, but it just came to me. Just, just kidding. Anyway, so, but the other dream was that, uh, that they, he had, uh, there were shafts of wheat, and that one day his brothers would bow down to him. And so different symbols, same message, came out in two different illustrations. And what we're going to see in the book of Revelation today is that there are different pictures. I like to see the story of the book of Revelation told several times. What I'm going to teach you today is called a cyclical view of the book of Revelation. In other words, if I had a whiteboard, I would draw up here squares or picture frames. And in each of those picture frames, you would see the beginning of the story, the middle climactic part of the story, and then you would see the end of the story, okay? And then you'll go to the next picture, and I'm going to walk you through some of this today. And then the next picture, the next picture, the next picture. Each one of them having very similar stories. In fact, many times it even uses the similar symbols. Not always, but sometimes you'll see there are similar symbols used in each one of the visions. And, uh, and a lot of times those symbols are based on Old Testament uh, symbology, symbology as well. Now, let's look at what Revelation is not. First of all, Revelation is not just about end times. That's called the futurist view of Revelation. That means that uh, everything that you read is going to happen in the future, and it's not happened yet, okay? I don't have that view, and here's one of the reasons. Just reading the scripture itself, verse 19 of chapter 1 says, Write, therefore, what you have seen. What is that? That's called the past. What is now, what is that? That's called the present. And what will take place later, what is that? So what we see in Revelation, right in verse 19, we see he's saying, I'm going to show you some things that have happened. I'm going to show you some things that are happening. And I'm going to show you some things that will happen. And all I'm saying is that those who believe that Revelation is all about end times, right from the beginning in verse 19, we know that it's not that way, that in fact it's about things that have happened, are happening, and will happen. The second thing that I believe about it is that its symbols are not to be taken literally. Its symbols are not to be taken literally. Now, a lot of people believe that when, you, when it says there's a beast of the sea, they say, well, there's really going to be a beast of the sea that comes out at some point. Uh, and I don't believe that. The rule of interpreting Scripture is literal if possible, uh, figurative if obvious. Okay, so as you're reading Scripture and you keep that in mind, you say, literal if possible, because that's the way we, we read the Scripture, but figurative if obvious. And here's an example. So in the book of Psalms where he says, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills is the Lord's, do you think that's figurative or literal? It's figurative. How many know that there's probably a thousand hills just in Kentucky itself, right? And so God just owns Kentucky, that's all. No, he owns all the hills and all the cattle that have ever been created. What he's saying is God owns it all, all right? So literal, if possible, figurative, if obvious. Now, why do I believe that the symbols in Revelation are obviously symbols? Because there are times where the artist 
who is painting these, these graphic depictions occasionally will step away from the drawing and will say, you see that right there in that picture? Let me tell you what that is. I'll give you an example. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, or verse 12. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, if you were to take that literal view, you would literally see what? Seven golden lampstands. And that was his vision. And yet, the artist, uh, the one who was describing, stepped away. And in this case, Jesus, to the angel, stepped away from the portrait and said, I want to tell you what that means. And he gives you the, the, uh, what it means in verse 20. He says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what are the golden lampstands? The seven churches. He tells you what they are right there in the Scripture. Does he do that with every symbol in the Scripture? No, he doesn't. Does he do it with every symbol in Revelation? No, he doesn't. But occasionally, just enough, he steps away and says, I want to explain one to you. So I believe that the symbols in Revelation are just that. They are symbols. Now, what is Revelation? It is a book of symbols and drama. I gave you scriptures here you can read later for study. It is a promise of blessing and hope. It's a message from God. It's a lesson in suffering and perseverance. Remember, these seven churches were going through difficult times of persecution. And so it's a lesson that we can learn. It's an encouragement for the church. It's a challenge to repent. Ultimately, we're going to see that the real message of most of these visions is a call to repentance because Christ is coming. And it's a vision of Christ's glory. It's a vision of the, of the conquering king. All right? Now, that's Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are real letters, short little paragraphs to real churches. Seven of them. And on those seven churches, what you'll see is some of the messages are challenging. And a couple of the messages are positive. Only two out of the seven didn't get rebuked. They got only positive words, right? But the rest of them, they got both challenging and a little bit of encouragement. Any, any one of your mothers do the Oreo cookie approach to encouragement and challenge? The one, they give you a little encouragement. Then in the middle, they give you a little challenge. Then at the end, they give you a little encouragement. And you walk away feeling pretty good about yourself. Well, Jesus did that in a way to these churches, but there are a couple of them. He, they don't walk away very encouraged at all because he really just kind of slams them, you know, and just says, you need to get your heart right, turn back to your first love, and repent. And so those are real messages. Are they hard to understand? No, they're not. Now, there's a couple symbols in them here and there, but overall, those are easy messages to understand. And that brings us right to chapter 4 and 5, all right? So you see how we're going through an overview of Revelation? We're already in chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 4 and 5 is one of the most beautiful uh, sections of Scripture because it is a, it's a heavenly worship section. Chapter 4 and 5 is not hard to understand. While there is some, some, some symbolic imagery there, really, it's, it's really all about what Christ uh, has done for us. Listen to some of these words in uh, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And so I think that this picture in heaven, they are extolling this virtue of God because he created all things in chapter 4. But in chapter 5, there is a grand entrance. It's almost as if the lamb who was slain 
entered into that heavenly scene after the crucifixion and resurrection, and now they're going to worship him, not for creating, but for saving. Then I saw a lamb, this is verse 6 and 9 of chapter 5, looking as if it had been slain. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Just like Sunday school, gang. I mean, when the teacher asks, nine times out of ten, the answer is Jesus. So just go with that, all right? They sang a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So in chapter 4, they are extolling the virtue of God because he's a creator. And in the middle of that, almost the lamb who was slain enters into this heavenly scene, coming back as a conquering king who was slain and yet now is victorious and resurrected. Chapter 5 of Revelation. Then begins this series of of really visions in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6 through 20 describe what I would call again that cyclical approach to Revelation where different stories are told but they are the same meaning, different symbols at times. Now to prove this to you, I'm going to walk through Revelation chapter 6 with you, okay? I'm not going to be able to do all the visions today or else we'd be here longer than the Baptist, all right? And uh, so we're going to be here just long enough, all right? Chapter 6 of Revelation. Listen to the vision that he describes. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Typically in the book of Revelation, the, the uh, clothing that is white represents the good guys, all right? Like in the old westerns, the guy with the black hat on was usually the criminal. The guy with the white hat on was usually the sheriff. That's the way it was in the book of Revelation, too. And uh, we see that here. Now, the question is, who is this conqueror? The obvious answer, it seems like, is, thank you, but maybe so, maybe not. All right. There's a couple different ways to view this. Some people view it as sometimes when it shows something that's in white or what have you, it'll be somebody masking as uh, as as part of the good guys. Right. That's sometimes the book of Revelation. You'll see that other times. And in this case, uh, it could be Jesus. But I really believe in this case that, that this is a view of Christ's people. This is a view of us bent on conquest to the world. And what is our conquest? Our conquest is sharing the gospel with the world. Now, that's how I view it, but uh, others might view it as Jesus. Either way, it's still a message of the good guys sort of triumphing. And then in the next verse, it says, But then when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Now, what would you say this guy had the ability to do? What was he enforcing in the world? Taking peace, causing people to slay each other. It's, a, it's at minimum murder or, a, or it might be war. The scripture says in Matthew that as we get close to the coming of the end of the age, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Have there been wars ever since the beginning of time? Absolutely. Were there wars during the time of when Jesus was here? Absolutely. Have there been wars ever since Jesus Christ died and resurrected? Absolutely. This is one of those examples of something that has happened in the past, 
something that's happening now and something that will happen in the future. That indeed there are wars. But he said this, in, this, uh, this writer had the ability to make sure that there was peace taken from the earth. Is that a message that seven real churches in the New Testament needed to hear? Listen, guys, I know we're bent on conquest, guys. We're going to share this gospel good news with the world. Jesus Christ has died for us. We are bent on conquest. But as you go, churches, as you share the message of Christ, you will face times where there will be wars and rumors of wars. And one of the things you're going to see as I describe this is each of the visions will become more and more graphic. Each of the pictures on the wall will become more and more challenging. I believe that as we get closer to the coming of the Lord, that we will see these things happen in ever-increasing measure. The next verse says, When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Typically in a class setting, I'll pause and I'll go up on the whiteboard and say, now what do you think that means? And people will meander for a while. But before time, I'll just tell you what I think it means. I think it means these are some economic hard times. Anytime he talks about, look, you're going to have a quart of wheat for a day's wages. Well, that takes a lot of wages to earn just a little bit of food. So I think that this has to do with economic difficulties. Now, do you think there have been economic difficulties from the beginning of time until the time when Jesus comes? How many of you are experiencing those economic difficulties? Amen? And uh, it happens. And so what we're seeing is this is a challenge, but it's going to happen in ever-increasing measure around the world until Jesus returns. Now, and again, a message that, to the churches that they needed to hear. And then it says, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, he says a fourth. Again, the numbers in scripture are in Revelation, I believe, are symbolic. One thing you're going to see if you read carefully, I'm not going to go into this today, but in, in future visions, you're going to see this one's a fourth. The next one's a third. And then you're going to see where they have more and more power over that. And so I just believe that indicates an ever-increasing measure. And what are you seeing that he's seeing, what he's doing? Famine, plague, pestilence, these kinds of things. The one was causing war. This individual is causing there to be pestilence and famine and hardship and perhaps even um, climate, uh, climate uh, kind of challenges. And I believe that we're going to see this in ever-increasing measure. Now, the fifth seal, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. What do we call these people? Martyrs. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. Now, would that be a message that seven real churches needed to hear? By the way, why did John and why did the angels, why did Jesus have this written 
an apocalyptic type literature style. But remember, John was on the island of Patmos. All of the other disciples had been killed for their faith. They had been brutally murdered. And here John is being exiled to an island. And on this island, he receives these visions and sends them back. All right? He's sending them back to territories where the people are being persecuted. So why would he use this message in symbolic language that they would know? I think because he did want the message to those who needed it. He wanted it to be revealed. But to those who couldn't understand it, he wanted it to be hidden. And I think that's what he was doing here. And he's writing to these churches, many of whom are these martyrs who are dying for their faith and being persecuted. Now listen to this next one. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as fig drops from a fig tree were shaken by the strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll and being rolled up and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? What's that sound like? That sounds like the great day. I mean, anytime in Scripture it says the great day, it means the great day. That means when Christ returns, the sky is being reseated. The stars are falling from the sky. This is every king every mountain, every person. I mean, this is the big, big day. But wait, we're only six chapters into the book of Revelation. If that's the big day, what are we going to do the rest of the time? And I think this is, again, an illustration of what we're going to see through all these visions, that there is a beginning of the vision, a really dramatic storytelling in the middle And then at the end, there will be this end time description of this dramatic coming of Christ. Then, after most of these visions, there is what we call an interlude or a period of kind of pause where he describes something else briefly to you, and then he'll give you a scene of heaven. Why? Because we think that's what's going to happen at the second coming. Christ is going to come, and then there will be this, this scene of heaven. And here's this scene. He talks in chapter 7 about the 144,000 who were sealed. And uh, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he calls out in a loud voice. Now look what he says in verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tongue, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne. They worshiped, Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen, end of vision one. And then we're going to see that pattern repeated again and again. And we're going to go to chapter eight and we're going to begin to see another one. In fact, I'm not going to go all the way through this, but verse one of chapter eight. Did you know that, guys, that we'll be in heaven first for 30 minutes before the ladies are there? Did you guys know that? 
Read, just read the scripture. It's right there. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Thank you, Gary, for that little, that little, uh, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to go through that vision, all right? But there is, uh, there is this continual increasing pattern, chapter 6 through chapter 20. Now, what I want to do now is go through uh, four of the most common, I believe, misconceptions about the book of Revelation. Uh, I've given in your notes, by the way, those visions where they're found. I've also given you how each of those visions ends with the great day of wrath, the time for the dead to be judged, the harvest of the saints, the blessing for the saints, each one of these having an ending and then a description of heaven. Uh, and uh, then in verse uh, chapter 20, 21 and 22, of course, uh, we're going to learn about uh, our heavenly home, okay? So let me do that before I go into our, our, final, uh, our, our final four things there. Revelation 21 through 22, after all these visions, we read about our, our heavenly home. And it describes it in 21. No more sea, meaning no more division between God and man. No more temple. We don't need a temple. Christ is the presence of God. We get to experience His presence for eternity. No more tears. No more sun. No more death. No more fear, no more pain, no more night, no more sin, no more curse. All of which we get to experience in our heavenly home with our conquering king. Now here are those four things that I promised. Four things, Revelation hot topics, okay? The first one is, you've heard a lot about probably before the mark of the beast and the number 666. Some of you freak out about this number so much that when your Wendy's receipt has 666 on it, you order additional chicken nuggets. You do this because you go, we don't want that number. That's a bad number, all right? Well, what does the number indicate? I told you the numbers in, in, in Revelation are symbolic. And so the number seven in the book of Revelation always indicates Christ. It indicates uh, perfection, who Christ is. Uh, our enemy is a six. He's not a seven. He wants to be a seven. He'll never be a seven. He'll never be the perfection of Christ. He wants to be that, so he's a six. In fact, he tries so hard, he's a six, he's a six, he's a six, but he'll never be a seven. Ever, ever, ever will he be a seven. And so this is what we believe, that that number is no more than that. It does represent the enemy, only in that he is not that number of perfection. He is not that perfect number. He's not Christ, all right? And so the mark of the beast, a lot of people say, well, the mark of the beast must be at the end of times, you're going to get a mark on your forehead, we're all going to get stamped, you're going to have some chip that's embedded in your arm, you guys heard this, you won't be able to get groceries or whatever unless you scan your little chip, then you'll be able to get your groceries, you have to check in, you know, and, um, but listen to what it actually says, Revelation 13, verse 5 through 8, the beast, who's that, that's our enemy, was given a month to utter, given a period of time. In other words, he has a period of time where he's got influence to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for a period of time, for 42 months. Now, again, I believe that's a symbolic time, a time that right now that we are living in this time where the enemy is trying to deceive people. It opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then you are doing what? Worshiping the beast. 
and the Lamb was slain from the creation of the world. Verse 16 goes on to say, It forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their hands, their right hands, and their foreheads, so they could not buy or sell unless they had that mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, he says. Let the person who has insight calculate that number, for it is the number of man. The the number is 666. Now, there's a way to interpret this. Some people do say, well, this is literally what's going to happen. There's going to be that mark. I take it to be more of an Old Testament reference. In, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9, the Jews call this the Shema. It means, the verse, the Lord our God is one. Uh, love the Lord with God, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says in that passage, to bind that, to tie that, that what? That scripture, that truth. Love the Lord with your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, bind that on your hearts and on your heads. Now, when I went to Israel uh, back in 2011, on the airplane ride over there, sometime in the middle of the flight, several people got up at the same time. It was quite uh, remarkable. And uh, you're not used to having several people get up at the same time. They all got up. They took their white shawl over their head, had blue stripes on it, and they began to read and they begin to go back and forth as they're reading. Now, as they did that, they took a little tiny box, and they put it on their arm, and they started with their finger, and they wrapped a leather strap all the way around their arm, and they had a little box here, and then they put a little tiny box on their head. They wrapped their head with a leather strap too. Of course, I do not know what this means. Not only that, I was a little freaked out by it. Not only that, I decided to ask one of the guys. I was like, hey, what are you doing? He looks at me like I am an idiot because everybody knows this. And I, he was like, we are reading. I said, what are you reading? He said, we're reading the book of Lamentations. I said, what are you doing with that little box? He said, it's the Shema. I said, the Shawat. He said, the Shema. He said, it means love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I said, why are you doing that? He says, you've got to tie it and bind it on your heart and your head. They took it literally. They literally put that little scripture in there, and they put it in there so it's next to their heart. And the question is, is that really what the author of Deuteronomy meant? I think the author of Deuteronomy meant, hey, listen, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And by the way, you better keep that in your heart, and you better keep it in your head, because that's the thoughts that you want. And so when the scripture describes those in the Lamb's Book of Life who have Christ's thoughts in their head and Christ's actions in their hands or they have the beast the mark of the beast you have his thoughts in your head his actions in your hands i think it's as simple as that i don't know i don't think the scripture is that difficult to understand i think he's simply saying that listen if you don't have christ's thoughts christ's actions if you don't have that seven you got a six and if you got a six you don't have what you need all right now i think that's what that means verse uh And then we go on to the next thing, which is the Battle of Armageddon. All right, the Battle of Armageddon. A lot of people talk about the Battle of Armageddon. They believe that it's going to be a final battle at the end of all time where there is going to be uh, the forces of God and the forces of the enemy, and they're all going to come together at uh, Megiddo. Now, I've been to Megiddo. Megiddo is a site. uh, It's in ruins now. 
but it's a site in Israel. It was a, it was a place of uh, meeting between lands, and it was a place of many famous battles. And so the author of Revelation describes some type of a battle that's happening, and he's going to say, he's going to use an image. It would be as if I said, hey, it's like the Battle of Bull Run. It's like Normandy. And immediately all of us would know, oh, I know what he's talking about here. There's a pretty cataclysmic battle happening. Armageddon's only mentioned once in Scripture. It happens right here in Revelation chapter 16. But listen to how he describes it. Now, in chapter 16, verse 16, he says, They gathered the kings together to a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Take it literally, all the kings of the world are going to show up in this tiny little place around, uh, around uh, Megiddo, and there's going to be a final battle. Take it symbolically, and here's what else it says in verse 14. There are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. He says, I come like a thief. Blessed are those who stay awake and remain clothed. I believe that Armageddon is that time right now of spiritual battle between the forces of God and the forces of the enemy. And I believe there is a battle for our souls that is happening today. Ever since the moment that Christ died and resurrected, Christ established his kingdom on this earth. Read the rest of the New Testament and you'll understand that. Read Matthew and you'll understand that the kingdom of God is now. That's what the scripture says. Jesus Christ established his kingdom upon his resurrection. And friends, if you are a Christian, you are part of that kingdom. We are kingdom people living on the kingdom promise that one day our great conquering king is going to come back and take us home to be with him for eternity. And right now we are in a battle. We are in a battle for the souls of man. We literally are. That's why what we do here every weekend is so critical. We are preparing for the battle that is at foot right now today. Now, why would seven churches who are being persecuted for their faith, if you only see this as an end times battle, why would they care? Why would seven real churches who are being persecuted for their faith care about something that has not even happened yet as of 2,000 years? The answer is they wouldn't. But they would care about the battle that they are in right now, that they are being killed for, martyred for, giving their lives for, and they want to know we're giving this for a very good cause. Because that's what I believe about Armageddon. Here's another one. Some people believe that that at the end of time there's going to be one world leader, the Antichrist. That might happen. There might be an Antichrist that comes, one who in particular tries to lead the world astray. But we have to at least be honest in the Scripture because there are other places where the Antichrist is mentioned, not just Revelation. Revelation 13, it mentions it. But what about 1 John chapter 2, verse 18? Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. What is the Antichrist or the Antichrists? 1 John chapter 1, verse 22, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. What I'm saying is that if we believe there's going to be one world leader who opposes Christ, I believe that Scripture teaches in 1 John that anybody who opposes Christ is anti-Christ. In fact, that's what 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 22 says. It's the one who doesn't follow or believe in Christ. They are opposed to Christ, which goes right back to that spiritual battle that we are in right now, friends, over the souls of people. 
Here's the last one. I think a lot of people have questions these days about the thousand-year reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, There are some who believe that Christ is going to return. There's going to be a thousand years of peace where uh, the enemies of God are taken away and we are allowed to reign on the earth for a thousand years. I, first of all, think that's symbolic in terms of its years. Like I've already mentioned, the symbolism of numbers. I also think that it says in the scripture that Satan will be bound for that period of time. Uh, But I believe that when was Satan bound? I think Satan was bound at the cross and the resurrection. I believe that this is already taking place. I believe that there is, again, aligned with all the rest of these images that I've already painted for you today, that, that when Christ died and resurrected, that Satan was bound. He was dead. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He lost that power, but he does still have influence. And we like to say it this way. It's like a dog who's chained up. The Bible says he's chained. It's like a dog who's chained up. Does he still have influence? Absolutely. You walk within the realm of that chain, you're in trouble, brother. You're in trouble, sister. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I believe that he still has influence today. But I believe that, again, this is the same picture of what we call the church age, where the kingdom of God is being opposed by the kingdom of the enemy. And that right now, Satan doesn't have complete control. That was bound at the cross. He does still have influence. So Christ is reigning. Now, if you want to read further about any of this, uh, G.K. Beale has written an excellent book called the New Testament International Greek Testament Commentary on the book of Revelation. It is a mere 1,220 pages. There is a summary version of it, however, and the summary version is merely 700 plus pages, and that summary version doesn't include all the Greek references. If you're like me, you can read the summary of the summary of the book, and you'll get a good idea as well. Uh, I want to encourage you, though, to, to there are other views of Revelation uh, and by the way, if you believe other things on this, uh, we've said for a long time, we're not on the planning committee, we're on the welcoming committee, all right? We don't know all what's going to happen, but what we do know is we better be ready, and that's the message of Revelation. No matter what, be prepared. Why is all the tragedy happening and challenging? One of the reasons is God is calling people worldwide to repent. And as we get closer and closer and closer to His coming, the call is clearer. Repent. Come back to the conquering king. Now, if you're like me and you like to keep things as simple as possible, I heard a guy describe the book of Revelation this way. He said, in the book of Revelation, there are two teams. There's God's team and there's the devil's team. God's team wins. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. If you want to keep the message of Revelation simple, that's it. God's team wins. So all of us need to choose wisely. That's the message of Revelation. God, we thank you so much today. Thank you for what you've given us through Christ. Thank you for the message of the Scripture. Thank you, God, you've given us enough in the Scripture so that we know how to believe in you. And God, we thank you that you've taught us today some things, maybe a different view, but a view of the Scripture, a view that says one day you're coming back. You conquered at the cross. You conquered at the resurrection. You defeated death. We live today as your kingdom people, living on a kingdom purpose, looking forward to the kingdom promise of heaven. And God, we look forward to that day where the conquering king will come back, where to take us to be home to be with you. God, we thank you for that worship that we see in Revelation 4 and 5. And now, God, for the next few minutes, 
we're going to sit in your presence, stand in your presence, and we're going to honor you through worship and through singing. And we're going to understand more as we celebrate today this conquering king. God, we give you all the glory and the honor for how you love us, for your salvation. And God, we thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior. Lord, today we worship you. We ask in Jesus' name.